Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the big stories in science and technology. Our lead story today, once again, concerns the coronavirus. This time, some politicians are saying, now's the time to throw away your mask. We're over the hump. It's all downhill from now. So let's celebrate. Other people are saying, not so fast. I mean, after all, even though we seem to be over the hump, the virus is still out there and it's still mutating. So what should we do given the fact that, well, we do seem to be over a hump, and the question is, is there another hump coming? Also, bad news on the medical front. People who have gotten the coronavirus sometimes complain about brain fog. Now, other people dismissed it, saying that it's just an excuse to goof off after you've been infected. Brain fog, what's that? Well, scientists have done an autopsy on many of the people that have died who complained about brain fog, and the results are very important. So we'll talk about brain fog. Is it really real or not? And HIV, after many a year, HIV is back in the news again. Not one, not two, but three individuals have been certified as being cured of HIV. And well, that's the good news, but there's also some bad news there too. And that is, it's a very exotic therapy that was used on these individuals. And the number of people that would qualify for the next round of therapies for HIV is only about 50 people. So we're not talking about a cure of HIV for the average person. We're just talking about the cure for HIV for a very select few that qualify. And also on the medical front, there's a new report from Yale University, and they've looked at that theory called caloric restriction. Do you know that of all the therapies out there to reverse the aging process, slow down aging, be young again, for all that hype, there's only one and only one therapy that actually seems to work to extend the lifespan. It's called caloric restriction, but we don't know how it works. Well, now we have a group at Yale University saying, aha, maybe they have figured out one of the mechanisms by which if you eat 30% less, you may live 30% longer. So we're talking about science now. We're talk not talking about hype. We're not talking about exaggerations. No, real science concerning life extension. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story for the past week, once again, is the coronavirus. And the question is, has the time come to finally throw away your mask? Has the time come to celebrate, to say that we've over the hump, that good times are ahead, that things are going to go back to normal, or is some of that optimism misplaced? Well, the truth could lie somewhere in the middle, because there is a debate. There is a debate among scientists, as well as politicians, of course, about whether the pandemic has turned into an endemic. In fact, California 
California seems to be uh, leading the way. The governor of California there is saying, well, maybe the time has come to throw away your masks. Maybe the time has come to live a normal life once again. Well, you know, people are tired. After all, the economy took a huge hit, tremendous amount of disruption in people's lives. It changed everything for the last two years. And the question is, is it time to celebrate? Can we bring out the champagne glasses and finally say that we're over the hump? Well, not so fast. Let's take a look at the good news and the bad news. The good news, first of all, is that the Omicron virus peaked. Peak in late January, early February, and the peak was huge. It was a gigantic peak because the Omicron virus is many times more infectious than the Delta version, which in turn was more infectious than the Alpha version of the coronavirus. And so that's the good news. The good news is hospitalization rates are coming down. It turns out that, yes, there was this huge peak in the end of January, beginning February, but things are going down. And so there is this debate, debate between people who say it's a pandemic still versus those people who are saying we're making the transition to an endemic. Now, an endemic would be like the flu. We don't have gigantic nationwide mobilizations against the flu. We simply live with it, knowing that some people will die of the flu. You, you try to get vaccinated. You try to, you know, obey certain kinds of guidelines, but some people will die of the flu. That is when a virus becomes endemic. Also, it's a law of evolution that we've discussed on exploration. If you are a virus like Omicron, you compete. You compete with other viruses out there for victims. Therefore, you want to mutate to become as infectious as possible because it's a horse race. If you are a virus and you're too slow, then other viruses will start to infect people and you're out of luck. So in other words, there's an evolutionary pressure to be as infectious as possible. But there's no evolutionary pressure to be more lethal than necessary because if you're too lethal, then you run out of victims. And so viruses, even though they don't think about it, obey the laws of Darwinian evolution. On one hand, they have to evolve to become more infectious because there are other mutants out there that you're competing with. But on the other hand, you don't want to be too lethal about it because there's fewer victims to hit. And that's why some people are saying, well, maybe we're in the endemic phase. That is, the symptoms of Omicron are not as serious as the Delta, even though it is more infectious than Delta, the symptoms are comparable to, well, the flu to a degree. So some people are saying, well, now's the time to face reality that the pandemic has turned into an endemic. Now, other people are saying maybe it's too soon. You see, there are other mutants out there. Omicron is not the only one. There's a mutation of Omicron, and people are following that very carefully. So until we get the green light, until we can finally say that there are no more deadly mutants out there, yeah, I think it's a little bit premature to say that we can throw away our masks and celebrate that we won, that we are the victors in this struggle against disease.
And speaking about the virus, many people who have gotten the virus and recovered from it complain about brain fog. Now, some people say, come on, give me a break. That's an excuse. These guys are slackers. They're trying to use the virus to get extra benefits, to slack off at work. I mean, what's brain fog after all? I mean, the virus hits the lungs, right? People cough, people sneeze. That's where the virus goes. Whoever heard of brain fog coming from the flu? Well, some scientists wanted to settle the question once and for all, so they did autopsies. Autopsies on people that died of the coronavirus and autopsies of people who didn't die of the coronavirus. And what they find was, well, they didn't expect this. Well, first of all, they found out that the people that got the coronavirus and died as a consequence, their autopsies show that, yes, there was widespread inflammation of the brain. Not only that, there was neurodegeneration of nerve tissue, and they were shocked because they found out that the damage was comparable to Alzheimer's. They didn't think it was that extensive, but yes, it turns out that the damage to the brain was more extensive than they thought, with inflammation, neurodegeneration that penetrated the blood-brain barrier. You see, there is a barrier between your blood system and the neural system of the brain. It's called the blood-brain barrier. Very few chemicals can penetrate that. Uh, among them, for example, alcohol and certain kinds of psychedelic drugs. I mean, that's why, that's why you get high in those things, precisely because they can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. But for the most part, the blood-brain barrier protects the brain. However, they found that the virus will actually penetrate the blood-brain barrier and infect the living brain. And that could cause, that could cause brain fog. And so scientists are beginning to reanalyze the symptoms, the long-term symptoms of the coronavirus, realizing that inflammation causes, yes, brain damage, and neurodegeneration means that even the neurons themselves are beginning to show signs of decay. So this is yet one more mystery that has been settled, but it means that the virus was more dangerous than we previously thought. Also, HIV is back in the news. That's right, it's been so many years since HIV terrorized populations around the world. And this time, three people, three individuals, two men and one woman, have been, quote, cured, unquote, of the disease. So let me explain. First of all, why is HIV so difficult to cure? At the present time, there is no one cure for HIV after so many decades of it ravaging communities around the world. And the reason is it mutates too quickly. Yes, it's possible to create a vaccine for HIV, but HIV then mutates and the vaccine becomes useless as a consequence. And so that's one of the reasons why HIV is a moving target. That's why it's so difficult to create a vaccine. So how do we actually put it at bay? What has been done in the last years to make sure that people don't die by the thousands of this disease? And the answer is, using genetic engineering, scientists have isolated choke points. 
vulnerability points in the reproduction cycle of HIV. Therefore, there's no one cure, no one chemical that knocks out HIV. No, you have to take a cocktail. A cocktail of different kinds of chemicals which hit the reproductive cycle of HIV, interfering with its ability to replicate. So that's the reason why people who have HIV have a basically a cold war, a cold war with the virus. They're not cured of the virus, but on the other hand, is relatively stable. So what's new? What's new, of course, is a possible cure for HIV, not just holding it at bay, but a cure. And that's where we have a little bit of good news. Three people, two men and one woman, were actually cured of the disease. So how did that happen? Well, first of all, they got bone marrow transplants for the two men. Now, that is a potentially dangerous procedure because, of course, you're going right into the bone marrow and transplanting it, and there are side effects. It's a very delicate procedure, but in this case, it worked. Now, the donor, the donor for the bone marrow had certain properties in the bone marrow that were anti-HIV. <clears throat> and so the doctors wanted to exploit that fact that in the bone marrow of the donor, you already had chemicals that would attack the virus. So the transplant was performed. It's a very delicate procedure. And these two individuals were cured. The third person, a woman, also had HIV, but also leukemia as well. And in her case, they used cord blood. So in other words, this time they were, get, were able to get a donor who had some anti-HIV characteristics, and they were able, therefore, to get the cord blood from that person and inject that into this woman who had HIV. And apparently, it was also a success. So that's the good news. The good news is that for the first time, we have, quote, certified successes of people that had HIV and were cured of it absolutely cured of it. No sign of HIV anywhere. So what's the bad news? Yes, there's always some bad news here. And the bad news is that these operations are rather exotic. The donor has to have bone marrow and cord blood that, is, that has anti-HIV properties. And so far, there's only 50 people 50 people in the entire U.S. of A. who can qualify as donors in the same way. And so that's the bad news. I mean, the good news, of course, is that scientists have, for, for the first time, been able to, quote, cure, unquote, people of HIV, but it's not for everyone. The next big breakthrough would be if we find a way to perhaps clone these chemicals and antibodies so that more than 50 people can benefit from it, but we're not there yet. Also in the news, life extension. You know, it's always very dangerous to talk about life extension because there's so much hype and there's so much quackery out there. Uh, turn on the TV and you see all these advertisements for things that reverse aging, stop the aging process, so on and so forth. Most of that is a bunch of hokum. And why is that? Because in order to really stop 
the aging process, you have to be able to penetrate the skin. But the FDA says that these potions you buy at the drugstore, you cannot penetrate the skin, and therefore they don't work. So in other words, the only reason why you can buy anti-aging creams is because they don't work. Isn't that rather ironic? But the cosmetic industry is so huge, it's gigantic, that they were able to get the government to go along with this. That's why you see all these advertisements for things that can reverse the aging process. I once talked to a dermatologist and asked him, what really can remove all those wrinkles and take years off your face? And he said, well, there are one or two chemicals that are promising, but the only chemical that really works, the active ingredient in all these cosmetics is moisturizer. That's right. So for the most part, you're paying big bucks for a scam. Well, the question of life extension is real because there is one and only one way to increase the life expectancy of an animal. That's right. Only one way proven in the laboratory works every time. And that is called caloric restriction. Caloric restriction, basically speaking, is you eat 30% less, you live 30% longer. So does it really work? Well, it's been tested on spiders, on insects, on rodents, mice, rats, dogs, cats, and monkeys. So realize that every time it's been tested, it seems to work. These animals live longer. So what's the catch? Well, first of all, there's one animal that has not been tested, and that is, you guessed it, Homo sapiens, you and me. Why? Well, probably because we live too long and we complain too much. And if we're inconvenienced, we sue people. And what doctor wants to be sued by a human trying to extend the lifespan of humanity? And so that's one of the problems there. But yes, it turns out that humans have not been tested according to the uh, life extension theory. Now, there are many theories as to how it works. One theory is that animals have a choice. Uh, they can, on one hand, they, if they're faced with famine, they can try to ride it out. That is, eat less, ride out the period of famine, and then, during times of plenty, they can reproduce. But you see, most of the time, animals live in a state of near starvation. When you see animals out there in the forest, what are they doing? They're suffering from hunger. They're continually trying to eat because food is scarce in the real world. And so one theory is that animals go into this state of eating much less than normal in order to live longer, in order to ride out the periods where there is famine. Well, at Yale University, they decided to put some of these ideas to the test. They took humans now, not spiders, not dogs, cats, not monkeys, humans. And for two years, they studied the thymus gland. The thymus gland, well, it manufactures white blood cells, which are very important for the body to fight off disease. But it ages faster than the rest of the body. Fatty tissue starts to accumulate, and uh, uh, over half 
of the tissue in the thymus becomes inactive when you're about 40 years of age. So the thymus is a good way to indicate and measure the rate of aging. So they put humans for two years on this caloric-restricted diet and then analyzed them. And that's where the shock came in. They found that these individuals had basically much less damage to the thymus gland. In fact, the thymus gland seemed to go the opposite direction, become healthier than normal. And so they said to themselves, aha, that's what happens here. When you eat less, then the immune system of the body kicks in. Here is white corpuscles, white blood cells. And that may be the reason why you can live longer. And then they did research on the blood itself, and they were able to extract the protein. They actually identified the protein which causes the thymus gland to go into a state where it lives longer with a healthier profile. And so this could be one of the ways in which caloric restriction works. It reduces inflammation. It keeps the immune system intact. And that may be the reason why you can live longer as a consequence. So it means that as time goes by, we may actually have reproducible, testable ideas concerning the aging process. Another theory is called oxidation, which I mentioned. Oxidation is what happens when you burn fuel. Take a look at a car. Where does aging take place in a car? Well, Aging takes place in the engine. Why is that? Because that's where oxidation takes place. Combustion, the buildup of carbon deposits, all that takes place in the engine. Well, where is the engine of a cell? The mitochondria. Well, bingo. You now know where most of the oxidation takes place in the human body, and that's where air buildup accumulates. So one day, if we have genetic engineering, Perhaps we can re-engineer certain organs of the body to strengthen our immune system so that we can withstand the ravages of the aging process. Well, we actually know what aging is. After so many false starts, we actually know what aging is. Aging is the buildup of error in our body. Genetic error, cellular level error, error, mistakes. Cells reproduce, they fission, mistakes occur in the fissioning process, and the buildup, the buildup of that could be accelerated by oxidation and inflammation. So at Yale, they found out there was mainly inflammation that was at stake here. The inflammation began to reduce the effectiveness of white corpuscles to fend off disease, and that's why they suspect that older people come down with more diseases. And that's one way to show that older people don't live as long as younger people, that their life expectancy is lower because of damage, inflammation, damage in the body, and that's what the aging process is, the buildup of error. Now, in the future, we might find several ways in which this, this error takes place because there are many ways in which DNA can be damaged. Radiation. Uh, bad diet, um, lack of exercise, uh, many ways in which the DNA can be damaged. And that, we think, is aging. 
Now, of course, some people would like to have a potion that retards the aging process. Uh, we don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But if I could make a prediction, I think that in the coming decades, not coming months, not coming years, but in the coming decades, we'll probably find not one, but several therapies and interventions which can slow down this buildup of mistakes and errors and inflammation in the body. In other words, a cocktail. So the fountain of youth is not going to be a fountain of water with just one chemical in it. Ultimately, the fountain of youth may be a cocktail, a cocktail of several kinds of therapies, including, for example, genetic engineering. Another therapy is to look at what are called the telomeres. There is a biological clock that says that, for example, skin cells have to die after 60 reproductions. This is called the Hayflick limit. And in some sense, it means that we are programmed to die. After 50 reproductions, cells go into senescence and they eventually die. But you can stop the clock. That's right. You can actually prevent this process from taking place with something called telomeres, which actually won the Nobel Prize for those individuals that show this. Yes, the biological clock can actually be stopped with telomeres. Now, what's the catch? There's always a catch someplace, right? Sometimes the news is just too good to be true. And yes, it is too good to be true. It turns out that, yeah, telomerase will stop the clock. But who else uses this chemical? Cancer cells. In fact, cancer cells are immortal. That's why they kill you. Cancer cells just proliferate to create a tumor, which then causes the organ to fail, and you die. In fact, that's why you die of cancer. So cancer also uses telomerase in order to stop the clock because cancer cells are immortal. Yes, there is a form of immortality. It's not the kind of immortality we would like, but it's called cancer. Why do cancer cells kill you? They kill you precisely because they stop the clock, precisely because they proliferate without checks and balances until a tumor forms. And then the tumor eventually interferes with the function of the organ that it, that it has attacked. And as a consequence, organ failure eventually leads to death. So we have to be very careful. Certain kinds of therapies, for example, hormone therapy, they do apparently make you feel younger and better. But too many hormones will also cause cancer. So watch out. Every time someone advertises a cure for the aging process, the first thing that people have to ask is, does it also generate cancer as well? Telomerase can cause cancer. Hormone therapy can cause cancer. So we have to be very careful. We have to be able to find the right balance, the right ratios, the right cocktail that will one day perhaps extend the human lifespan. So I think it's possible. I think it is definitely possible. We have so many leads, but of course, as I mentioned, the side effects have to be conquered as well. And the number one side effect for many of these therapies is cancer. So in some sense, we also have to find a cancer if we want to find a cure for the aging process.
Well, that's it for the first part of exploration. Once again, if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I have over 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Well, stay tuned for the second half of exploration when we continue discussion of science and its impact on society. Stay tuned. Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to continue our series talking about the relationship between science and religion. With us today is Professor Daniel Dennett, Professor of Philosophy at Tufts University, and he has a, well, rather unorthodox point of view. He thinks that in some sense, religion can be explained using Darwinian evolution and science. And so the question is, what is the relationship between religion and science if religion can be explained by science? So once again, in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Daniel Dennett talking about the relationship between science and religion. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Dr. Daniel Dennett, Director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University, and he's the author of a very controversial book that people are talking about called Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. In other words, can science tease apart the origin of religion? Is religion itself a byproduct of Darwin's theory of evolution? Well, these are some of the questions we're going to ask Dr. Dennett as we talk about whether or not science can explain religion. In other words, can we break the spell? Religion as a natural phenomenon. As a youth now, can you tell me how you first got interested in science? Well, I got some books that had a wonderful for children, well, not for children, for young adults, a account of, of Einstein's theory of relativity, and I read that through and got fascinated with it. But actually, I, I didn't study science very, very much in school. I was a, I, in college, I was a philosophy major. I didn't really get into science until I was in graduate school when I decided I really wanted to understand how the human mind worked. And to do that, you had to know psychology, you had to know neuroscience, you had to know artificial intelligence. So I began to 
educate myself in those fields. Well, then, what was it? What was what was it about philosophy as a youth that got you interested? Well, I think a lot of kids ask philosophical questions without thinking of it as philosophy. Just why are we here? What's the nature of truth? What's the nature of reality? Uh, what's time? What's space? What's the cause? Uh, and I found myself um, asking those questions, and I think it was when I was uh, oh, about 11 or 12 or 10, maybe, uh, off at summer camp, and a few of the counselors there suggested to me, oh, what you are is a philosopher, Dan. And I didn't even know what a philosopher was, but I thought, oh, okay, cool. You mean you can, you can actually do this for a living? Wouldn't that be great? Okay, and then what got you interested in cognitive science? Um, well... Cognitive science is, uh, didn't even exist when I first got interested in it as a term. It's just the various sciences, the interdisciplinary field of the mind. And uh, uh, as I said, I was interested in what dreams were and optical illusions and visual halluc- illusions and hallucinations and uh, memory. And I thought about it just on my own as best I could, and I began to hunt around for uh, uh, books and experiments. And... Uh, but most of my serious work in cognitive science didn't start till I was in graduate school. Okay, now let's talk about religion and the substance of your book. Uh, first of all, anyone picking up a copy of your book might think to themselves, uh-oh, here's another liberal diatribe by an atheist denouncing religion and saying God does not exist. However, I guess that would be an unfair criticism of that, right? Well, that would be an unfair criticism, uh, not because I'm not a liberal and an atheist. I am both a liberal and an atheist. But that's not the point of my book. My point of the book is to say, look, I don't know whether religion is a good thing or not. It may be, but it's a thing. It's a phenomenon. It's a fantastic set of phenomena. They're beautifully designed to do what they do. Let's study them scientifically. We really need to because our understanding of these phenomena is going to be very crucial in the coming century as we deal with the world's problems. Let's look under the hood and see what makes them tick. Okay, now if you were a Martian coming down to analyze Homo sapiens and you realize that, well, gee, all Homo sapien tribes have a religion, there seems to be a deity or some kind of mystical uh, trappings to each of these philosophies, wouldn't you say, therefore, that, well, gee, maybe there's something genetic about all this? Well, uh, something has to explain it. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, Martian biologists would say... uh, no, no, no such expenditure of energy and time and, and wealth uh, could possibly uh, persist if it wasn't if it wasn't paid for by by differential reproduction of one sort or another. So there's probably a genetic base, but of course it could also be that the that the practices themselves uh, reproduce uh, and jump from host to host, from person to person, and the 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 survival benefit is to them, not to, the, not to their host. Okay, now let's talk about that specifically. Uh, the essence of evolution is that when different species acquire certain characteristics by mutations or what have you, uh, it helps their survivability. That's they right. then pass these characteristics on to their progeny. There's an advantage. Now, here's the key question, therefore. 
if societies do spontaneously uh, uh, adopt religions, then if there is an evolutionary basis to this, as you claim, there is an advantage. There has to be some kind of selective advantage that religion gives them. What is that advantage? Well, there has to be a selective advantage that is given to something, not necessarily to them. You're right. Every, every human culture that's been studied, from small tribes to great nations, has, has religion. Every human culture already all, ever studied also has the common cold. Now, if we say, well, gee, I wonder what advantage the common cold provides to, uh, to people, the answer is it doesn't provide any. It survives because it can survive. The advantage is to it, to the, to the viruses and other pathogens that reproduce. And what we have to take seriously is the idea that religions survive because they can. Now, maybe they're really good for us. After all, in our bodies, in each of our bodies, there are not just thousands, not millions, not billions, but trillions of tiny organisms without which we could not live. They are essential to us. But it's their survival that that's how they evolve. They evolve, uh, uh, they have their own genetic fitness. And we have to look at the fitness of religious ideas on their own. Okay, now in your book, you take us back thousands and thousands of years when humanity existed in small tribes, almost like in wolf packs, and you then trace how religion could emerge from these very primitive societies because it performed some kind of service. So take us back now to the early days and trace the origin of religion. Okay, first of all, I want to remind you of, of, a, of a feature that we share with with. Most animals, uh, um, you may have seen your dog suddenly jump up when, and growl when uh, some, some snow slid off the roof uh, and landed with a noisy thud outside the window, or some, start, some noise suddenly makes your dog jump up and growl. What's that dog doing? He's looking around to see, who's that? Who's that? Who's there? Who made that noise? He's jumping to the conclusion that there's an agent a being that has beliefs and desires and intentions that maybe is out to get him. Now, that's a hair-trigger response, the, the agent detector or the agency detector, and it's, a, it's something that we have when we hear rustling in the bushes. We are uh, immediately alerted to this. Whenever anything novel and complicated and mysterious happens, one of our first thoughts, if not our very first thought, is, who's there? Who's doing that? Why? And this has... This obviously has a survival advantage. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a great way of staying alive if you've got a sort of predator detector. Of course, it may be a mate or it may be a rival. Uh, you want to find out. You want to orient to that thing and find out. So that's something that we share with animals. So what I suppose is that just as, as your dog might jump up, whenever puzzling things happened among our hominid ancestors, they were... They were saying, who's that, to themselves. But then their imaginations, because they had language, I'm supposing, at this time, this were taking us back way into prehistory, but, but when language had been born, these ancestors of ours said, gosh, what was that? Did that tree talk? I think that tree talked. Oh, my God, a talking tree. Of course, they didn't say, oh, my God. They said, oh, my, a talking tree. And they did this all the time. Maybe hundreds of times a day, they do the little startle, 
And most of these were sort of silly ideas, and they didn't catch on. But a few of them were sort of more memorable, sort of unforgettable, and they would stick in people's heads, and they would think about them. And maybe they'd compare notes and say, hey, do you know about that talking tree? Oh, no, really, a talking tree? Who knows what the ideas were? But they re- replicated in the minds of the people, and they began to have a common stock of unforgettable ideas of agents. These were not real agents. These were figments of their imagination. But we've just explained how that could get started. Now we've got competition in the brains of those ancestors. There's limited space. There's competition for rehearsal space in those minds. And some of them, the most unforgettable, the most vivid, the most, the most gratifying to think about, those are the ones that are going to stick around. So now we've got gods and demons and goblins uh, in, in great abundance as we see in the worlds of folk religions today. And then gradually these get refined, and I could tell a very long story, but I tell it in the book, but I'll just shorten it down now and say a few of these ideas were particularly valuable or apparently valuable. For instance, one of the most uncomfortable feelings anybody can have is the sense of indecision. What do I do now? What should I do now? And sometimes we flip a coin or sometimes we consult tea leaves, or sometimes we ask a friend, and sometimes we're just stumped. Well, the idea of asking one of these gods, what should I do, and then waiting until some kind of signal is given back, could have been a great way to just get us off the dime and get us to do something. And sometimes when indecision is itself the enemy, when Mainly what we have to do is figure out what to do and then all agree to do it together. Having a God that can tell you what to do, even if the God is just complete chance, at least you're going to do something, you're all going to do the same thing. Now, animals apparently are not aware of their mortality. Humans, of course, can be obsessed by their mortality, And some people think that perhaps religion got started when we began to contemplate an afterlife. But what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's a lot to that. Um, uh, A a corpse is something which is fearful and something that we find uh, repugnant and, and we want to get away from it. At the same time, if it's the body of a loved one, we want to approach it. We don't want to go away. So we have a tremendous conflict. When when somebody we love, somebody particularly in our family, dies, this creates turmoil for, for good biological reasons. And that somehow that turmoil has to be negotiated. Something has to be done. So this is a very powerful force to, to drive the creation of ritual as a, as a way of getting over this turmoil and responding to it. And part of what we have to deal with there the habits of mind that we've formed. For years, we've been thinking, well, I wonder what she thinks about this, and would she like this, or would she like that? Or does she know such and such? Oh, I hope she doesn't know that I just did that, and so forth and so on. We're always imagining, thinking about, wondering about what our loved ones are thinking about, wanting, intending, doing. When somebody dies, that doesn't stop. We can't turn that habit off. Those, those habits of mind continue and fill our heads with the ghost of the person who just died. That's a sort of 
persistence of a habit of thought, which quite naturally turns into the conviction that, well, they're not really dead. They're still here. You can't see them anymore, but they're still here. They're with us. And we can still ask them, what should we do now? So it's not surprising that in, in just about every case that's been studied, the ancestors of the religion are ancestors, ancestor worship. Uh, it is no accident that God is called Father, or occasionally Mother, in just about every religion. Now, back in those days, people didn't live very long. Uh, today, of course, we can plan our retirement in Florida, but back then they didn't live long enough to die of heart disease and cancer and old age. Uh, the life expectancy was on the order of perhaps maybe 20 years, say some demographers. So death was constantly around them, including their own mortality. So you think that gave an impetus to, to, for people to believe in religion, realizing that they could live forever, even though there's death all around them? Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's uh, a, a plausible factor. I think we, can, we could take that one and many others and put them all together uh, and then start sorting them out and seeing which ones, which ones are really important and why. And then we can start to dream up psychological research, for instance, that could test some of those hypotheses. It seems, for instance, to be uh, particularly important that, I mean, there's a tradition that God is omniscient, but it turns out that what people really behave as if they believe is that God is omniscient about things that matter morally or that matter strategically. Uh, it's not so much that, that, that um, um, God knows um, how many grains of sand are on the beach, but God knows if you do something wrong, or God knows uh, if you tell a lie, uh, or, or uh, where, the, where the, the stolen items uh, are. Uh, we, can, we can devise subtle experiments that can test out people's uh, really involuntary reactions to scenarios of this sort and see that uh, uh, a lot of the lore of religion that is officially written in the, in the text is not actually officially followed. Now, then the key question is, what advantage does this confer onto a tribe? Let's say you have two tribes, one tribe that ignores religion totally— yep. And one tribe that gets into all this mysticism, reincarnation, God worship, pantheism, what have you, uh, why does the second tribe survive or have a better survival um, probability than the first tribe, which says, bah, humbug, there are no demons, there are no ghosts, there is no afterlife? Well, um, maybe it doesn't. That's, that's just one of the evolutionary possibilities. It may be that the, that the uh, ideas... Of the, of the of the religious ideas, they survive just fine, but they don't do the tribe any good. That's always a possibility. Uh, it's probably more likely that the tribe that does have the uh, uh, religious ideas, the beliefs in the supernatural, is uh, given a greater sense of cohesiveness. Uh, they're a bit more forthright. They are, are more confident in battle. Uh, and there's a lot of warfare going on uh, between these tribes. Uh, they're more ruthless and more confident in battle, and that may be uh, the key to why why it helped them. Uh, whether it's still a good uh, adaptation uh, for for human groups is is an open question. Uh, our sweet tooth, after all, is 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 
more of a problem than a benefit today, but it was certainly a it was certainly a good adaptation for us to have back in those days. Now we also had uh, Dean Hamer, uh, Hammer from the National Institutes of Health on our radio waves. He talked about a God gene, uh, the fact that perhaps there is a gene in our genome that actually uh, uh, selects out those people who believe in God. And there is something called epileptic lesions, uh, that is uh, lesions to the brain that can actually be induced by a blow to the brain in which people see gods, demons, uh, and witches everywhere, that everything is caused by gods. If it rains, well, there was a rain god that did it. They, became, they become super-duper religious if they have epileptic lesions. Some people think may, maybe Joan of Arc uh, had epileptic lesions. But, well, what are your thoughts about something as, uh, um, as nitty-gritty as a god gene? Well, I think that's putting it in a, in a sort of overly vivid and 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 crude way of course sometimes you have to get an idea out there in sort of cartoon form first and then look at the details i think it's possible first of all of course no matter what you think about there's something in your brain that's lighting up uh uh just in order to make it possible to think about that so the fact that there would be parts of your brain lighting up when you're thinking about god or when you when you're having a religious experience is is should not be a surprise to anybody on any account. The question is, why would there be, if there is, uh, a specific uh, gene for making it more likely for people to have uh, religious experiences? And um, Hamer doesn't have much to say about this in his book, but I think uh, others have put forward some interesting research that could shed light on this. Um, uh, uh, McLennan, the the, uh, anthropologist, has pointed out that Everywhere uh, in folk religions, you have shamanic healing. You have witch doctors. You have shamans who go through elaborate ceremonies, and then often they have uh, involving hallucinogens and, and drugs, local potions made of, of, of materials found in the area. And some of this really works. Uh, it works for some things. Uh, shamanic healing is, is not just hocus-pocus. And... In particular, uh, it works for conditions where a placebo effect can be induced. Uh, and so the suggestion is that what shamanic healers were very good at finding, devising, were techniques which they passed on to their, to their successors for inducing a sort of hypnotic analgesia, a sort of hypnosis, which had a placebo effect, which helped relieve the pain of childbirth, for instance, and could cure uh, some ills. Now, if that's true, then the fact that some people are more or less immune to hypnosis, they just aren't hypnotizable, other people are very hypnotizable. Now, if there's a genetic difference between those people, and there may well be, and that may be what Dean Hamer has, has discovered, then, of course, having the gene for susceptibility to hypnosis would be, in effect, having health insurance. <laughs> uh, back in those days, there were no doctors, there were no hospitals. If you needed relief, your only hope was the shaman. And if you had a genetic difference from your neighbor, which meant that shamans were more effective with you than they were with your neighbor, this could be a tremendous fitness boost for you. 
Okay, I picked up a copy of Time magazine a few years ago where on the cover they talked about uh, science and religion. And inside it mentioned that if you take a electromagnetic transmitter and put it right next to a certain part of the brain to excite a very specific region of the brain, people become very religious. Uh, they think they're in the presence of an omniscient being. They become awestruck uh, by this presence. And uh, this is not a healing thing. This is not going to make you, uh, you know, cure cancer or anything. But there seems to be a part of the brain which responds, uh, a part of the brain which has evolved. And the question is, why would this part of the brain evolve unless there was some, like I said, advantage to feeling that you're in the presence of a deity? Uh, well, it could evolve for any number of, of reasons. Um, uh, if you show people certain visual effects, they see uh, amazing illusions. Uh, why did that evolve? It evolved as a byproduct of a good working visual system. No, no uh, organ system is perfect. There's always the scope in which it works well, and then there are the conditions under which it works pathologically. And uh, if, if those conditions are rare enough, or if the pathology is not too deleterious, then that can be a good bargain. The best, the best of all possible worlds is a, a vision system which almost never gives you hallucinations or illusions, but of course sometimes it does. Why do we see a stick in the water as bent? Well, because it's just too expensive to make a vision system that can somehow correct for Snell's law of refraction. However, there are fish and birds that do have vision systems that can correct for, for the refraction of water. So it's not impossible. So the, the fact that if it is, and I'm, I'm not quite so sure that the, the transcranial magnetic stimulation works quite as, as uh, crisply as you suggest, but let's suppose for the sake of argument that it does, uh, why should there be uh, a spot which uh, induces uh, uh, some sort of religious conviction to occur? Well, that's a very good question, and it may not be because it's good to have that belief. It may be that it's good to have the beliefs that uh, the system delivers, and this is the system in a pathological state. Well, I'm afraid our time is up for the second half of exploration. And let me just say a few things about my own position on some of these questions. I think Galileo said it best, the relationship between science and religion. He said that the purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go, while the purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So in other words, the purpose of science is to understand natural law. The purpose of religion is to understand ethics, that is, how to be a good person, how to go to heaven. And I think as long as we keep these two separate, then I don't think there's any problem at all. The problem occurs, however, when someone from the natural sciences pontificates what ethics should be, while people from a religious background begin to pontificate what scientific law is going to be like. And also, Einstein was asked this question a lot, and his answer was very straightforward. He did not believe in a personal God that answers your prayers. I mean, why should God spend all his time answering everybody's prayers? 
he thought that the purpose of the universe was in some sense related to understanding science, order, elegance, truth, beauty. The universe could have been ugly. The universe could have been chaotic. But here we are in an orderly universe, a universe that is gorgeous, a universe that obeys a handful of physical laws. And it didn't have to be that way. It could have been a mess. It could have been nothing but subatomic particles that never coalesced to form atoms. A very boring, uninteresting, ugly universe. But here we are in the middle of a gorgeous universe. And that, thought Einstein, was not an accident. And so he considered himself to be a young boy entering a gigantic library for the first time. And all he could do is take the first book and open the first page and read it. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Go to my website to find out what I do. It's mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it's about, well, what I do for a living. I work on something called string theory, which we think could be the theory of everything. Good day.